0: The Secrets presents Forgotten Tales, serialized fiction by today's master writers. Today's episode features the short story, Absolutely Charming by Michael A. Stackpole, which first appeared in Amazing Stories July 1991. Sit back and enjoy.
1: I felt tremors of anticipation ripple through me as the postman took the folded slip of paper from my hand. The look of indifference in his flat eyes died beneath the wave of lustful hunger that surged onto his face his mouth hung open as his eyes devoured each word and his lips faithfully echoed them a second later his eyes flicked from word to word faster and faster as he neared the end of the paper then he flipped it over greedily looking for more when he saw he had read it all he reread it quickly and would have started on it a third time but my hand closed on the paper he tried to pull away but i folded the sheet hiding the writing from him and he snapped out of it reluctantly he let me pluck the paper from his hand "'My God, that's great!' He wiped his brow with a yellowed handkerchief. "'Is there any more? There's got to be more. I mean, that's the best thing I've ever read. My God, Mr. Dager, you're a genius!' I smiled in a kindly fashion. "'Thank you, Carter. Just a little something I tossed off this morning.' The mailman gave me a low whistle. "'Boy, I thought you gave up writing five years ago, after that guy rejected your book. I mean, you know, I haven't read your book, but if it's anything like this, that editor was a fool!' I forced my ire away at the mention of him and maintained the cordial facade on my face. Yes, well, editors are known for momentary lapses in judgment. Perhaps you will see the error of his ways. Thank you, Carter, for your encouragement. Yes, sir, Mr. Day. He pointed a trembling finger at the note in my hand. When that gets published, let me know where. I'm going to buy bunches of copies. I contained my mirth until I shut the door and shot the bolts and let it ring loudly within the confines of my dingy domicile. I crumpled the slip of paper in my left hand. And carelessly tossed it into a corner. I had succeeded. After five years of research, trial, and testing, I had done it. I had discovered the secret, and now that I knew it, I would have my revenge. I stooped and recovered the ball of paper, then smoothed it out against the cover of the Grand Albert. A simple, slender piece of ruled paper, it was unremarkable. It was actually less than that, this collection of words that imbecile Carter had seen as a great work of literature. Feeling the power surge through me, I started reading it aloud. Clorox, assorted soup, rice one pound, toilet paper. My oration was subsumed by laughter. The words would have been nothing if not for the device I had painstakingly inscribed, the head of the sheet, and now was hiding beneath the ball of my thumb. This is what had taken five years of delving into arcane tomes. Elusive and deceptive, I tracked it through aged parchments that had not been touched in centuries. I waded through witch-hunter diaries, and forbidden books of lore and languages long thought dead, but pulsing with power. A hint here, a clue there, led me on my quest for a symbol of power, a symbol because of which men and women had perished in legions. Ultimately, my quest was frustrated, because all trace of the sigil I sought had been destroyed. Those who knew its power had learned to fear it, so they caused all representations of it to be destroyed. However, other sigils had adopted bits and pieces of it to steal some of its power, and they still remained." Like an archaeologist or geneticist, I tracked back to this eve of arcane symbols. I stole a piece from the key of Solomon here, and the Enochian alphabet there. Little by little, slowly, methodically, and scientifically, I synthesized the device I had so long hunted. I brought it back from extinction. I recreated the siren sigil, and knew it was good. Carter had proved it. Carter, my simpleton lab rat, had endured countless lists of nonsense as I tried out variations on him. Some provided curious and amusing reactions, but none until this morning had given me what I wanted. Carter, under the siren sigil's influence, gobbled up my grocery list like it was some tawdry thriller. Could not put down. He wanted more, and when there was none, he read again what I had written. From that fragment alone, he deduced I was a literary genius. If it had worked on Carter, it certainly would work on him. I crossed through the musty stacks of books piled like stalagmites on the floor of my front room and into the bedroom. Feeling invincible, I reached up and pulled the framed letter from its place above my bed. My spur, the thorn in my side, the driving force of my quest. This letter had haunted me since Carter had borne it to my door. Over the years, when despair had sapped me of strength and will, I had re-read it to fill me again with rage. Now, with victory in my grasp, I allowed myself the luxury of again reading of my humiliation. Dear Mr. Tay. Under normal circumstances, as a common courtesy, I undertake to thank writers for sending their work here to Mountain Books. However, in your submission, I find nothing that motivates me to do this. I do appreciate, in both your cover letter and Chapter Three, your expressing your opinion of the substandard and puerile work we've produced in our various lines. Repetition of that criticism in Chapters Seven, Twelve, and One Hundred and Twenty seven might be seen as excessive no doubt motivated by your belief that our moronic editors would be incapable of recognizing subtlety if it jumped up and shot them with a nuclear particle accelerator. I must agree with your assertion that your work is difficult to bracket, though not as you suggest because, quote, literature as a concept is really too limited to encompass my work, end quote. You are not Dostoyevsky. You are not Dickens. You are not literate. The novel you have submitted to us is useful only as a dictionary of mercilessly overworked cliches. I would call your characters cardboard, but I am not of a mind to insult cardboard. Elizabeth Taylor's entire wardrobe is less purple than your prose. The suspension of disbelief necessary to accept your tale is only exceeded by that which is required to believe we would actually consider publishing this work. If 50,000 chimps banging away on typewriters for years could produce Shakespeare... I would guess that 50,000 Hiram days banging away on typewriters could produce an almost publishable come-quick novel. I truly hope this is the only novel you have attempted. If not, I fear your home could be classed as a toxic waste dump by the EPA. You should be reported to the Surgeon General for sending this work out without a warning label, and were the Nuremberg Court still in session, I would report you for human rights violation for producing this work. If, by some twisted piece of logic, of which you are most assuredly capable, you do not understand that I suggest you cease and desist all writing, please do not consider mountain books a possible market for your work. The same goes for any and all relatives you have. May you live in interesting times. (Signed) Gordon Cobb, Editor-in-Chief. I flung the frame away from me, and it smashed against the wall. Chuckling to myself, I reached up to my highest shelf and pulled down the box containing my manuscript. Lovingly, I blew the half-decade's accumulation of dust from its lid. Setting the box down on the bed, I opened it and pulled the six-hundred-page manuscript forth. Clutching it to my breast, I headed back to my work-table. Love's chainsaw caress would finally see print. I resisted the temptation to paint the siren sigil on the cover page. That page was superfluous and likely would not be copied were the manuscript duplicated within the publishing company. Also, I assumed that were the sigil to exert its influence in the mailroom, it would take forever for my manuscript to reach his hand. I turned to the first page, and in the wasted white space at the head of the preface, I set to work. Dipping my narrow brush in the bottle of black ink, I started to draw the siren sigil. With serpentine forms, I created the lozenge device that encompassed the whole of the design and empowered it. Near the top, I then added the triskel vortex that would draw the reader down into the work. Light shading and twists through the lines hinted at seductive feminine curves, and the womb warmth we all distantly remember and crave. This urged the reader on, and reassured him that no matter what else he had read, nothing could be more right or perfect than what he was about to experience. Strong, quick tentacles laced down from that, and intertwined in a morass of Celtic knotwork. This firmly placed my work as part of reality, and suffused the reader with the knowledge that he was capable of adjudicating what was art and what was not. Clearly, in the reader's mind, my work deserved exaltation as the highest form of human endeavor in the world of literature and all of art. Finished, I resisted the trap of wanting to admire my own work. I had slipped an index card over the first half of the design as I worked on the second. I knew that, had I allowed myself to succumb to temptation, I would have read through my book again and again, until I fainted from starvation or something sufficiently distracting tore me away from the manuscript. Three days of reading and re-reading the TV guide on which I had idly doodled the sigil convinced me not to make the same mistake twice. I returned the title page to its place, then put the cover letter I would prepared earlier in the week on top of it. This time I refrained from giving him the benefit of my wisdom. In fact, other than a strongly worded suggestion to include the design on page one of the manuscript on the first page of the novel, my letter was perhaps the most banal thing I would ever written. Carefully packaging up the manuscript, I hauled it down to the post office. I resisted the temptation to send it express, and relied on priority mail to get it to New York in two days. Revenge should be savored, I reminded myself, and an express-mailed manuscript would instantly send up a red flag. This would not do. I wanted him taken utterly unawares. The next week was one of exquisite agony. I started and stopped three different novels featuring Clint Courage, the hero of Love's Chainsaw Caress, Countless were the times I picked up the phone to call Mountain Books, but I always hung up before he could be put on the line. No, no, I would not tip my hand. The time to gloat would come later, when caress had made me a fortune, and I had him groveling at my feet, at my hideaway in the Côte d'Azur, begging for my next novel, he would be. And I'd tease him and lead him on, and then deny him, lashing out with those words of his, words I'd long since burned into my brain. Toward the end of the week, I resolved to buy, with the huge advance they would offer me, a video camera. I realized that the real money would be made with the movie version of Caress. I felt fairly certain the sigil would function in film or video format. For a half second, I felt a chill, as it occurred to me that some television executives might already know of my secret and might have been using it for years. Then, on Saturday, Carter appeared at my door. I signed for the express mail package he had for me then shut the door in his simpering wine for another look at what he had read before. When I told him I had destroyed it as unworthy, he wilted and began to moan. As I tore the package open, the sound of his pitiful voice faded from my consciousness. The letter was from him. Obsequious is a delicious word that feels perfect in the mouth for spitting out with derision. To describe his letter as obsequious, however, would be to describe the sun as a photon or an ocean as a molecule. I read the letter as avidly as Carter had read my grocery list. Brilliant. Unparalleled work of scope and vision. Unimagined before. Gritty and realistic yet fantastic and allegorical. A genius for description, characterization, and plotting. A masterwork from a grand master of the English language. Yes. Yes, he had said everything I expected and more. I'd sunk the hook in and gotten him. He said he was rushing the book into production and assumed I would find the enclosed contract satisfactory. Sign both, put them in the SASC, send them, and we'll be in business. He closed with, Until I read your book, I had been an atheist. Reading your work has convinced me that God does exist, and he has smiled upon you. My own laughter ringing in my ears, I sat at my desk and looked at the contract. The author warrants, Yes, standard boilerplate. I hitched as I came to the clause in which Mountain Books retained all serial rights to the work, but I let that slide. Whatever paltry sum they could get from a mere excerpt would be insignificant compared to the fortune the novel would make me. Publishing excerpts from the novel would be advertising as far as I was concerned, so I could see throwing them a bone and letting them keep the money they got for it. On I read, faster and faster, the legalese flew past, seeking to entangle me in copious clauses, but I sorted them through. Then I hit another rough spot. No advance for the book, and another. Royalties of one ten-thousandth of a percent of the cover. Do once a century. On the 29th of February, further and further I raced through the contract. Outrage upon outrage was heaped upon me in my novel. Mountain Books retained all rights to foreign editions and book club editions, and they had to pay me nothing. They demanded exclusivity from me, with a new novel coming every three months, as long as I lived. I would move to New York and live in their building and write for them. And then, when I perished, they wanted the right to farm my work out to any hack willing to work beneath my name. My jaw dropped in utter disbelief. Here, Gordon Cobb, he, had proclaimed my work akin to that of something penned by God, and yet some grasping flunky in his legal department sought to deprive me of my due. Some little empire-building munchkin with a sheepskin from the South Bayou College of Law and Cosmetology, no doubt. Well, he would learn to rue the day he dared draft this mandate of involuntary servitude. When I got through with him, he would be through with this moron. In a fury, I flipped to the last page of the contract and stopped cold. Gordon Cobb had already signed the contract. How could he have allowed this travesty to go out over his signature? Did he not know with whom he was dealing? Could he not see he was cutting off his nose to spite his face? Then, down toward the bottom of the page, I saw it. I recognized the gentle shape of its triangular outline. The tendrils flaring off like black flames began to writhe as though fanned by an unfelt breeze. The uneven scales at its heart righted themselves as I tilted my head to study them. Its shape, its simplicity, its invitation to join the fold, it all made sense. The thrall sigil. I picked up my pen.
0: Be sure to subscribe for more of the best fiction. As the secrets present Forgotten Tales, go to www.stromwolf.com for details. We'll see you next time. From New York Times bestselling author Michael A. Stackpole Comes the first book in a captivating new fantasy saga Unlike anything you've read Set in a world where magic is the ultimate power A secret atlas weaves a tale of a privileged few Whose consummate skill has the power to change the world for all time Publishers Weekly said This satisfying story has it all Wild magic, the excitement of epic fantasy And the adventure of exploration in the age of sail Discover a world of magic and adventure On the other side of imagination Buy a secret atlas today